0: Welcome to the Economic Development Matters podcast. I'm Brianna Morris, and together with my co-host Sherry Baslama, we talk about matters related to economic development and why it matters. Sherry and I work together at Edmonton Global, where we focus on attracting investment into the Edmonton region and helping our local companies expand internationally. On this podcast, we discuss how we can compete globally and build a sustainable and prosperous economy to enhance the lives of the people in our
1: communities.
2: Today, we have with us Adam Legg, who is the president of the Business Council of Alberta. Welcome, Adam. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me on.
2: Can we start with you just sharing a bit about yourself and your background?
1: Sure, I am sort of one of those combined uh, policy nerds and economists that somehow uh, managed to get the opportunity to lead a couple of organizations. Uh, I have my current role, as you say, with the Business Council of Alberta. Prior to that, I led the Calgary Chamber of Commerce for seven years between 2010 and 2017. Um, and then my career has largely been in that space of public policy, um, economic development, uh, worked for Calgary Economic Development for a number of years, um, and uh, with PricewaterhouseCoopers in their real estate and economic development consulting practice for, for years. Uh, a uh, urban land economist and urban planner by education, but um, never really got into the whole urban planning career, moved more into economic development, and here I am. Business Council of Alberta.
0: Awesome. So tell us about the Business Council of Alberta. How long has it been around?
1: So we're a little over four years old, uh, created by five founders, uh, Mac Van Willigan, Ron Maddox, Nancy Southern, Don Farrell, and Hal Quisley. All of them believe that there was a need for a a private sector, public policy advocacy voice in Alberta, Uh, but one that was different than a typical industry association, for example, one that had a bit more of a long-term perspective, a very wide-angle lens, we call it. So, we talk a lot about shared prosperity um, as opposed to, say, an industry-specific set of issues. So, we typically take a more macro perspective um, and a bit of a longer-term perspective on the issues that we cover. Um, We do cover things that are in front of us uh, at any given time, like clean electricity regulations or oil and gas emissions caps and and, um, carbon capture storage issues. But Typically, a lot of our work has been very long-term, like our Define the Decade tenure uh, vision and strategy. So we have about 128 member companies. Uh, Most of them are are the larger companies of Alberta. And uh, again, all of the companies really subscribe to this notion of advocating for public policy that helps make life better for all Albertans through a thriving private sector.
0: Do other provinces have a business council uh, like this as well, or is it unique to Alberta?
1: Uh, It's not unique. No, actually, the Business Council of British Columbia is the first one that started back in 1967. Um, And then the Business Council of Canada uh, exists and it was started back in the uh, late 70s. There is a Business Council of Manitoba, uh, a Business Council of New Brunswick, and then similar organizations without the name Business Council in them uh, in Newfoundland and Quebec as well.
2: So, Business Council of Alberta, though, you mentioned, has only been around for four years. Do you know why it took so long for something like this to be established here?
1: Um, there were some different iterations at the time. I think the very early days of Alberta Enterprise uh, Group was thought to be what this would be, but uh, it, for a variety of reasons, didn't materialize in that way in its uh, current form. Um, the, um, the the chambers, uh, and particularly Alberta Chamber, was deemed to be an excellent organization, but was generally more small, community-focused. Um, and so this... Uh, I think was a culmination of just some political realities, to be honest, when we had uh, NDP provincially and, and liberal federally, that there was some concern about some of the sort of uh, call the, the, the business um, uh, environment and some of the, the economic issues that were being tackled or not tackled at any given time. So I think it just sort of all came to a head um, in, in that time of sort of late sort of 2018 um, that, Got a bunch of business leaders and the founders together to say the time is right uh, for this kind of organization.
0: And Adam, did I hear that all of your members are also members of the chambers? Like it's not uh, like it's a very complimentary sort of um,
1: Yeah, and right? that's one of the things that was very important to me having come from the Calgary Chamber was when we were first starting. I actually met with uh, the, the Calgary and Edmonton Chambers and the Alberta Chamber to say, look, we're, we're not here to compete for for your members in fact many of our members are members of any one or multiple of those chambers um and uh what we did say was the municipal local or regional issues are going to be your domains we won't touch those we'll focus on the provincial and the federal space um which is more so the federal i'd say is space that that some of those chambers weren't necessarily uh involved with as much um the provincial space obviously clearly with the alberta chamber etc but um we we very much wanted to be supportive and complimentary, and um, I think we've we've done our best to engage and work with the not only the chambers but the economic development organizations in the communities throughout Alberta for sure.
2: Can you walk us through sort of how you determine as an organization what your priorities are for advocacy?
1: It's a a bit of an art. There's no real science to it. So we do a few things. One is we're always keeping uh, tabs on current affairs. What's the key critical issues for our business? So I'm talking to our members pretty regularly to understand what are their business pain points? What are their public policy pain points? um, What is it that they think are priorities for us to be working on? We then look at the current affairs landscape, what's going on generally in the economy and in the country and in the province. And then thirdly, we look at really what are sort of the government priorities and what's coming down the pipe in terms of their different legislative agendas. Um, the, the most challenging thing is to try and take a topic that's important to you but has nowhere on the radar of government to try and affect public policy change. You kind of have to work with the tides mm-hmm. that flow um, in government. And so we try and find so that we can build something that is generally in line with the set of priorities that they have. So you said take all of that, mix it together, and and that generally identifies the the policy priorities that we do. We are, I don't know if I don't know if it's unique, but we we generally only have one major project on the go at any given time. We've decided intentionally to do fewer things, but do them better. Um, we do a variety of different commentaries or analyses at a, at a very um, high level. Um, and so we'll have, say, two or three of those on the go at any given time. But in terms of deep public policy, what we call task force work, it's really just one at a time. And that enables us to really get a bit deeper than, than we could if we were trying to tackle four or five, six things at any given time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So at Edmonton Global, we loved your Define the Decade report, um, but your most recent one, uh, the Future Unbuilt report, I think uh, we'd like to dive into that a little bit with you. Um, So tell us about that project. What is the main focus of the the Future Unbuilt report?
1: In a nutshell, it's about how do we get uh, good projects happening and how do we get good projects approved faster in this country? Um, it's a culmination of things that we, for many, many years we've often heard that it is very challenging to get things built in Canada because the, the regulatory and approvals process is so long. Um, it, the the external reputation of Canada is a place you just can't get things built in. Um, and and just many, many major projects that need to happen uh, if we're going to be hitting our emissions reduction target. And and it was at a meeting um I'd heard, I'd heard that sentiment quite consistently from our members for, for many years, in fact, even back in my chamber days. Um, but it became really apparent when uh, we began to hear from Minister Wilkinson at the time all of the the emissions reduction targets that the country has put in place, what that would mean from an industrial development standpoint. And I can remember uh, turning to him at one of the, the roundtables that we had and said, Minister, you know, frankly, these targets are so ambitious that, that our own regulatory process is going to get in the way of of getting things built to hit these targets. And he said, Yes, we know absolutely no, it's an issue. If you have any recommendations, let us know. And so we struck this task force to really try and say, How can we speed up the process, keeping the quality and the integrity of the environmental reviews and the indigenous consultations front and center? Um, but how do we make them happen faster? Because if we are going to hit any of our emissions reductions targets as a country, we need projects to happen very quickly because it is six and a half years to twenty thirty. Um and if we take too much of that time in just reviewing projects and getting them approved, they won't be built in time to affect the emissions reduction profile. So Uh, It was really sparked through that consistency of the issue that that business was facing. It was was, uh, struck because of the imperative to get things happening quickly uh, to hit our emissions reductions targets. As we've sort of paraphrased in the report, the typical regulatory process was built to ensure that bad things didn't happen. We now need to figure out a way to improve the system so that we make good projects happen quickly. So that's really the the genesis uh, of it all.
2: Thanks for highlighting that. I think I actually wrote that down. Um, The report says regulatory systems have been set up to keep bad things from happening. Now we need them to enable good things to happen quickly. I think that's so critical. Uh, Who was all involved in the task force, Adam?
1: So we had a, a variety of, of members. We typically build our task forces with, with members to begin with uh, who have expertise and experience in the various topics. And so we brought a lot of our our members and and the people they have in their regulatory uh, approvals uh, functions. Uh, some of them are, are uh, public policy experts, some of the regulatory experts, some of them are lawyers. And then we augmented that with some people who had had some, some direct experience. So we had, um, It was chaired by Sarah Schwan from Pembina Pipelines, co-chaired or vice chaired by um, Rob Bourne at Enbridge, um, and then a number of other members, but then also asked people like Ian Anderson, the former CEO of the TMX uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline project to be part of it. Uh, We had um, a couple of people who have had experience in the regulatory approval system uh, through the the National Energy Board, et cetera. So augmented it with a little bit of expertise. We brought in um, the, both the Canada West Foundation and the Business Council of British Columbia. Both have a really strong expertise in this area. And so it was a bit of a, a bigger team than normal, a bit more of a broad team than normal, but it's such an important topic and one that's really so highly specialized that you, we needed to bring in the, the right people to make it uh, to make it the best team possible.
0: So what are some of the things you, you identified in your report? Um... Uh, like, what, what are some of the major hurdles um, that, that that's causing projects to be so slow?
1: Yeah, well, I'll, I'll sort of start with, with the recommendations and sort of work backwards into sort of talking about the issues. The, 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 the crux of it is that we've identified three priorities um, for improvement. We need to have improved participation, improved process, and improved predictability. What those really boil down to is in the current systems, and, and this is a bit of a blend of both um, the pre-impact assessment agency process uh, under what was called CEA twenty twelve, which is, and then when Bill C sixty nine came in, it created the Impact Assessment Act and the Impact Assessment Agency. So there haven't been too many projects in the new system. Um, there have been some. In fact, the Cedar LNG Pembina's project was one of them. And so they we did have a blend of experiences across the old and the new models. Um, so some of this is still to be worked out, but um, generally there is some consistency amongst the experiences in both. The first would be is that participation. Um, we've got a system that does not really do a very good job of, of determining um who can and should participate in a review process and who shouldn't uh generally this notion of standing who has impact uh who or would be impacted in the process so there needs to be better clarity uh, around that um one that has not i would say hit the mark uh yet is but is getting better is indigenous consultation it is a duty of the crown to engage with indigenous communities along any affected uh route or project um and as we know in previous examples they've uh not they have not successfully uh, executed that that duty um so and often it becomes a bit of a uncertain space with the proponent and how much do they engage with indigenous communities and how much does the crown engage and so the crown has told us that they definitely need uh, a, an improved system and i think they're working on that so that's that's the first one the participation second would be the, the process is that there's just a there is an established process, but often at times it's not adhered to, um, and the process gets bogged down by cumulative multiple asks for information um, that may not may or may not pertain actually to the impact of the project. And some of them are being done almost at an academic and curiosity level by different departments. Um, there's really no good coordination internally within the federal government to ensure that the process is consistent and is streamlined. Um, and then you hit the issue of, of overlapping jurisdictional issues, meaning in federal and provincial, um, and the consistency in application. The, the 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 CEDAR LNG project is actually an example of, of a really good improvement to the system where they use the provincial government and its environmental impact uh, review process on what's called a substitution agreement so that the province did all of the work and the Fed signed off, given that their, their review process met the standard of the federal government process. And I think that's where...
2: That was in B.C., right? That was in B.C., exactly. Yeah. And I
1: think there's, there's a desire uh, at the Impact Assessment Agency to see more of that. And I think that actually is probably the model for the future. Um, and then finally uh, is the predictability side. While there is an established timeline, um, often things are now being lumped into the pre-assessment period which actually doesn't start the clock um so things that should fit into the once the clock has started uh is getting bogged down at the front end and so there's lots of additional work and expanded timelines that happen because the clock hasn't technically started yet Um, there are there's a there's a, a lack of understanding of how some of these um timelines will affect construction windows for example if yeah, depending upon where the project is, construction windows of up to a year can be lost if there isn't something that starts at a certain period. So um, the review process typically don't factor those into consideration, which they should. And finally, the most, um, I would say, problematic of the predictability issues is that the minister can designate a project uh, to go under the impact assessment process. Um at any time and so what that means is that many projects um are are at risk of having to go through a a process that they may not necessarily have needed to go through so if if a project is deemed to not need to go through the impact assessment process um the minister can then still unilaterally put it through the process which again is many many tens of millions of dollars and and years of of review so there's a high degree of uncertainty at the front end of the process and then even after uh federal legislator regulators have provided their okay or green light to a project it still has to be approved by cabinet um so that it becomes a political decision at the very end of the process so there's political uncertainty at the front end there's political uncertainty uh at the back end and there have been a number of projects that have sort of succumb uh, to that. And Enbridge's uh, uh, and Northern Gateway is a perfect example of uh, where political perspective came in and, and killed a project at the very end of a process. So those are really the three issues, uh, participation, process, and predictability. And, and so we've tried to develop some solutions to tackle all three.
2: It really sounds to me like uncertainty is a theme that kind of runs through all three of those, right? Which I think business owners don't like. They want to, they're investing a lot of money into these projects and they want to have that certainty that as long as they're following the rules that are kind of in the playbook that's kind of at play that things are going to, you know, move along. So
1: you're you're absolutely right in the sense that uh, there are lots of risks that businesses can mitigate, um, whether it's foreign exchange or, or, or other sorts of capital risk, but the political uncertainty is one the, the, there's just no mitigation strategy around that. You're just sort of at the whim um, of any kind of political decision, as I say, from the beginning to the end of the process. And that makes it highly risky.
2: So what are some of the short term solutions that the uh, report identified?
1: This is a, a big complex uh, set of solutions. And so we've got a variety of ones under each one of those three priorities we talked about just a minute ago, the participation process predictability, but we, we mapped out four things that we think uh, none of them in and of themselves will be, will change the model uh, materially, but, but taken together could demonstrate some significant progress, some significant commitment um, and some significant movement that the government was listening to business and understanding that we do need to fix this process. We call them needle movers. The first one was in terms of dealing with that political uncertainty is clarify very uh, uh, specifically uh, how a minister could designate a project to go through the impact assessment agency process. Right now, it is literally at the whim of the minister. We feel there should be some very published criteria or a bit of a bar that the minister would have to meet uh, for a project to then be deemed to have to go through the review process. Right now, it is, as I say, it's very open, very uncertain, um, and a very significant signal to to projects would be to, to set some specific criteria. Second would be to create a body to oversee permitting. One of the challenges is that once a project goes through the impact assessment process, and let's say it's approved and given the green light and cabinet approves it, It then needs to go back into various departments in the federal government to be issued permits, whether that's under environment, whether that's under fisheries and oceans. Um, And what happens is that once it goes back into the departments to be issued permits, sort of enters in a bit of a black hole in the sense that no one is stewarding the permits on behalf of the proponent or the project. Um, It's a task that we think could be adopted by the Impact Assessment Agency or it could be overseen through um, the the Privy Council Office. But there needs to be uh, a process to coordinate that because there can sometimes be additional information requests to get the permits. But as much as we fix the impact assessment process, we also need to fix the permitting uh, process to make sure those happen quickly. The third is um, shorten and scale review timelines. Um, A lot of these things are happening uh, at, at far too lengthy a process. And the Act itself actually enables the project review period to be scaled based on the complexity of a project. So far, none of the projects have been scaled adequately. They've all taken the maximum amount of time that's given within the the legislative window. So we're saying use that power because it's there, it's in the legislation that if a project is uh, um, uh, maybe an expansion of an existing project or there's already some precedent for uh, the review that's been done, scale the timeline so we can make sure these things happen quicker. And then finally uh, is, There's a huge amount of opportunity, uh, and we think the future for uh, these projects to happen is through increased Indigenous participation, um, particularly from an equity standpoint. And uh, we've seen some examples here. Alberta's got the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation, which is an amazing uh, vehicle for communities to participate in equity uh, projects. The best example being this consortium working with Enbridge, the Athabasca project, that's given a variety of about 20-something Indigenous communities an equity stake in in an actual resource project, but it doesn't exist at the federal level. And so we've encouraged, as the fourth needle mover for the federal government, to create basically a federal version of the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation that would enable Indigenous communities all across the country to participate uh, in an equity uh, uh, position on, on major projects optimistic that will come through uh sometime in the future but uh it is a critical missing link uh, for greater indigenous uh, participation and frankly economic reconciliation
0: yeah absolutely those sound like uh really great recommendations um do you also have because sherry mentioned you know short-term recommendations these will move the needle what what's the what what's the goal the long-term vision that that you're hoping to see
1: Um, There's sort of a a long-term vision of of, uh, a regulatory environment in Canada that is our competitive advantage. Um, We can't compete with the U.S. at scale in terms of some of the financial incentives, so we have to make sure our regulatory and approval system uh, is our competitive advantage, uh, one that meets the environmental uh, targets and objectives and imperatives of of uh, of the country but also um uh, indigenous reconciliation goals and 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 um, emissions reduction targets for the country S- some of that like all of the changes we've identified under those three buckets of of priorities which i mentioned a little while ago all of those are part of uh, uh, an adjustment to the existing system um Longer term, uh, we need to really make sure that uh, that we 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 do explore potentially rebuilding the system, um, but that's a, a much longer term uh, project. But we think the four needle movers and and some of the other ways in which we can streamline the process, clear up the participation aspect, and create greater predictability, all of those will work in concert to ultimately bring uh, a faster system. That will get us to a, a very competitive place um, uh, globally, but uh, longer term uh, would need a, a fairly substantial overhaul if we were to make it perfect and sort of built from scratch kind of thing.
2: One of the things that stood out to me in the report was um, the report points out that the federal government has said that they need to invest 125 to $140 billion a year to Meet their current targets, and right now they're only investing about a fifth of that. Are you saying then that because we can't in, we can't compete with the U.S. in terms of the billions and billions of dollars that they're putting into their Inflation Reduction Act, that we don't actually need to meet that 125 to 140 billion um, target? That we can actually become competitive through doing some of these regulatory changes? Am I understanding that correctly?
1: No, not quite. So, uh, so the feds have identified that they do. That we need to spend that 100, um, uh, $125 one hundred twenty-five billion. We're only investing uh, a portion of that. That's collectively both between the public and the private sectors. It's not just government alone. Okay. Um, we do need to spend that, quite frankly, and and probably actually even multiples of that as we begin to to really understand this issue even more. So, we need to create the. Conditions for capital to come and invest in Canada. Now we won't be able to compete a, a, at scale with the United States, um, so we're have to be very strategic about where we do deploy that. Um, and that's obviously a, a broader conversation for another day. But uh, what we do need to do is make sure that if capital is looking to go somewhere, one of the key decisions that they do place capital based on is is the regulatory system and the approvals and the certainty, etc. So we need to make sure that to be the most attractive place to attract capital that we can be, absent the whole financial incentive component, that regulatory needs to be a strategic focus for us. And for us to be able to attract that, that those billions and billions of capital needed to decarbonize, um, our regulatory system needs to be far better and faster than it is now. Otherwise, that capital will go elsewhere or it will come at, at such a slow pace we won't hit the targets that we are setting for ourselves as a country.
0: Interesting. Great question, Sherry. And yeah, that's interesting, Adam. Um, so the were parts been out for a, a few months now, I think. How is it being received so far, uh, especially within the federal government?
1: Yeah, we launched it on June 15th uh, in Ottawa and I'm I'm very happy to say that it's uh, received great 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 attention. Um we we've met with uh senior officials from all across the federal service uh including the clerk uh, John Hannaford. Uh we met with Minister Gibo, Minister Wilkinson uh I spoke to Minister Freeland about it uh, just last week, so it is it is in it is in the system um I can tell you that it is one of the top priorities for it. right now it is is being overseen by the p c o the Privy Council office, which is that they call it central the the body that oversees much of the work in the in the public service they've been tasked with coming up with a a work plan to improve because the budget 23 did include money to improve the regulatory approval process in Canada. PCO has been tasked with coming up with a work plan to achieve that. Uh, We are working with them right now in terms of implementing that. And that our report goes in as a key body of work to help inform the recommendations that they'll put forward to, uh, to government in terms of streamlining and improving the process. Um, We've proposed that they form a bit of a, a working group that could be sounding board for stress testing some of the solutions that they put forward to, before they actually roll them out to say, will this actually make a difference? How will this happen on the ground? And that we would be part of that. And some of the members that we had as part of the task force would also be part of that to, as I say, stress test the solutions they come up with. But I've we've been we've been told that we'll be actively engaged as they do the work in the, the latter half of the year. To come up with the recommendations needed, so I'm very optimistic um, that uh, BCA and its its task force members will be uh, highly engaged in in the solutions that come forward. Ideally, by the end of this year or or early in 2024.
0: That's great, and I, I and I do feel um, when I, I, I when I read budget 2023, there was a statement I think in the federal government's budget saying, you know, it can't be taking 12 years to approve these major projects. So yeah, um, and as you noted earlier. Minister Wilkinson uh, wanted those recommendations from you, so yep. it is really heartening to hear that uh, that the federal government is, you know, well aware that this is this is a challenge that um, needs addressing. So we're really glad to hear you're you're optimistic.
1: Yeah, it's one of those rare moments uh, in my career where what we've been working on is exactly what his government is wanting and is focused on. Oftentimes, you don't necessarily have their attention at the highest. Priority level, but uh, this is one project where I think we do, and um, so it uh, it's something we we were told. Prime Minister's Office uh, called it the the best piece of work in the country on this topic so far, and um, and Minister Wilkinson, when he was in Alberta during Stampede, said that he basically agrees with pretty much everything we've we put in the report. So I'm optimistic that that we'll see some some meaningful progress uh, as the as the system is transformed and improved.
2: And fitting too, I think that it's coming out of Alberta, where we have such a long history of delivering on these big infrastructure and energy
1: projects. So kudos. Yeah. No. Absolutely. This is, we uh, we roll up our sleeves and figure out ways to get things done here. So very proud. Proud that it's part of it.
0: Adam, what's the what's the next big uh, project uh, research project for the business council?
1: So we are working right now on a project uh, we're calling the prosperity driven uh, immigration. And uh, it's sort of a premise around two pieces. One is that um, we want to make sure that as the federal government looks to retool the immigration system, which they are are doing right now, um, that it's done in many ways to meet the needs of the workforce. Uh, We have some points and scoring systems that don't necessarily align to what employers are needing now and into the future. So there's some real opportunity to, to adjust that. And then the second part is, how do we make sure that we set uh, uh, newcomers to Canada up for success? We've got very ambitious and increased targets for immigration in the country, um, but it doesn't look like we're getting corresponding resources to help settle uh, those folks in Canada. So whether it's things like uh, language support or whether it's housing, whether it's uh, credential recognition, uh, whether it's connections with community, we want to make sure that uh, everybody is set up for success so that uh, that uh, that new immigrants very much can be part of canada's improved economic performance our improved productivity uh, meeting the needs of canada's companies so there's a, a bit of work to be done on uh, on both sides of that equation so we're looking at um, what are some of those tweaks that can be made both on the the immigration system side but also on the settlement side as well
2: super timely and super important i look forward to hearing the outcomes of that work i know talent is a critical issue for most um, businesses today and i know we've got a lot of mega projects that are you know planned to to happen in our region or you know the, the companies are exploring and that's been i think one of the biggest worries are we actually going to have the workforce to support these
1: big projects so exactly as you look at the the build out of canada's um, decarbonization efforts, whether it's CCUS, whether it's LNG, whether it's hydro, solar, wind, you name it. Um, I think the the big question mark on many companies' minds is if we pull the trigger on all of this, um, will we have the people to, to build it all? And I think that is probably the bigger question than, than the money side of it is, will we have enough people?
2: Absolutely. Adam, is there anything else that you wanted to share with listeners before we let you go?
1: No, no, I think that's great.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time today um, uh, policy nerds like me love this kind of conversation and <laughs> yeah it's uh, yeah
1: well no thank you guys for taking an interest in this in this project in, in us and and um, you know I, I think there's there's real opportunity here for Canada to be competitive in the space and we just have to be very intentional about about making it right for for, for emissions reductions targets and getting good things built quickly so thanks for taking an interest in it and profiling it. appreciate it Thanks again. Thank you.
2: That's a wrap for today. Thank you for tuning in to the Economic Development Matters podcast brought to you by Edmonton Global. For more information about Edmonton Global or to get in touch, visit our website, edmontonglobal.ca. Follow us on social media, on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. And don't forget to follow us on your favourite podcast platform, so you'll be among the first to know when a new episode drops. Thanks for listening. We hope you learned something new about
0: why economic development matters.